0: Greetings one and all, my name is Jeremy Walker and you're listening to a podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. This podcast is produced by Media Gratii and you can find them and us at mediagratii.org podcasts where you can sign up to a weekly newsletter where you'll get the featured sermon as a PDF and an outline of the reading scheme. Some of you may be just listening, some of you listening and reading, some of you listening and reading day by day. There are various options. The daily readings you can find at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. That's at Reading Spurgeon. But if you want to get the featured sermon alone, then the Media Gratii newsletter is the way to go. Or you can just keep tuning in and listening here, in which case we're very thankful and we'd appreciate it if you'd leave what we hope will be a positive review, because I'm told that that makes a genuine difference. So, as mentioned, You know the reading scheme. This week our featured sermon is number 697 out of 696 through to 702 in our weekly readings. And sermon 697 is entitled God's Cure for Man's Weakness. God's Cure for Man's Weakness. It was delivered on the 24th of June, 1866. That was a Sunday morning sermon. It was preached by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington in London. And the text is Hebrews 11, verse 34. Out of weakness were made strong. Zeroing in on that particular phrase. Now, Spurgeon's concern in this uh, sermon is what he calls spiritual feebleness, and its cure. He begins by reminding us that some kinds of weakness are not sinful and therefore we can regretfully continue to be subject to them but there are some weaknesses which are sinful and you should not pray for strength in sinful weakness but rather strength to come out of that weakness and to be made strong. And the suggestion is that uh, out of weakness being made strong is therefore the emphasis of the text in Hebrews. It is the inestimable privilege of many a Christian to be strong in weakness when the weakness is only one of infirmity, but it is an, an equally precious boon or blessing to be made strong out of weakness when that weakness is of a sinful kind. Now whether or not that's uh, the most Crisp and precise exegesis is, for the sake of this sermon, a moot point. It's the sermon's emphasis, it's the preacher's intention, and we'll at least acknowledge that that is the case. Now, he also says that both ministers and private members of the church are very generally weakly in one way or another, living but sickly, working for God but feebly and inefficiently. And when he looks to the camp of the Lord Jesus Christ, Spurgeon says, I lament a predominant lukewarmness, a want of enthusiasm and deficiency in force, which, if it does not betoken a departure from God in heart, that is, if it does not indicate a departure from God in heart, certainly indicates very great feebleness in the vital parts, producing comparative weakness in all the parts. And that's the the aim of the sermon. He's preaching to those who are weak where they ought not to be he wants to stir up those who are beginning to imagine that weakness is the normal and proper state of a christian so that's the specific goal so he's really working his way down through the layers here yes there's a there's a weakness that isn't sinful but there's a weakness that is and we shouldn't indulge that then there's a genuine concern for those who are weak in this way there's this lukewarmness this lack of enthusiasm, this deficiency in force, and so the goal positively of the sermon is to speak to those who are beginning to think that it's normal for a Christian to be in this weak state. As he puts it, that to be unbelieving, desponding, nervous, timid, cowardly, inactive, heartless, is at its worst a very excusable thing. I want, if God wills, to show to the sinfully weak ones that their condition is not proper at all. So he's addressing that idea that that state is at worst a very excusable thing. He says it's not excusable. It's the work of faith to lift us out of that state and condition, not to help us in our evil weakness, but to deliver us out of it and to make us strong reversing our present condition by enabling us to be mighty in the work of God. So then, since the text teaches that faith is the grand cure for spiritual feebleness, the preacher is going to cite a few cases of cure. And Cite here, he's going to uh, quote, if you will, a few cases of cure. Then secondly, analyse the remedy. In the third place, endeavour to administer it. And in the fourth place, speak a word of praise to the physician who prescribes it. This is one of those sermons where uh, Spurgeon, we might say, gets righteously carried away early on and then uh, more or less running out of time toward the end uh, has to compress his last two points. In doing that, he's actually a pretty good example to preachers because when the Holy Spirit is at work in us and through us, sometimes those neat and well-ordered divisions in our sermon might uh, not quite fit Uh, as we anticipated they would in the coolness of the study. And it's good for us to remember that uh, Spurgeon doesn't just necessarily allow for that, but he's quite willing to be subjected to those operations of the Spirit, and therefore, with his help, to adapt his sermon so that its uh, parts, portions, and proportions uh, are uh, changed as he goes without then wrecking the overall... uh, progress of the sermon. The balance of it may uh, on the surface seem to be a little bit off but the emphasis is then where he would say uh, the spirit wants it to be. So then cases of cure and he begins by uh, just making a very brief reference to uh, first of all Old Testament case Hezekiah who was uh, made physically well by faith. The apostolic times, he says, saw the same blessing. And then he mentions two more recent occurrences, John Wycliffe and a lady called Dorothea Trudel of Zurich, whose prayers and whose labours were, under God, it seems, employed to bring about a measure of at least physical peace, if not uh, absolute well-being, by directing the mind to Christ. And he suggests that if we had more faith in the living God, it might sometimes be possible for the soul so to overmaster the body that out of weakness we might still, in Hezekiah's fashion, be made strong. So that's almost an aside. He recognizes that, but he just wants to say that there's at least a place for, for understanding that strong faith, because we're made as holistic creatures, that is, we're, we're, we're body and soul, we're, we're one complete unit, that the state of the soul, and therefore the degree of faith, may have an impact on our physical well-being. But he's not going to dwell upon that, and neither are we. What he's more interested in is the the spiritual strength of the church, And so he begins to point out, first of all here, that faith strengthens Christian men and that that has been proved often in the history of the church of God. The church's weakness springs mainly and mostly from a want of faith in her God and in the revelation which God has entrusted to her. When men believe intensely, they act vigorously. And when their principles penetrate their very souls and become as precious to them as life itself, then no suffering is too severe, no undertaking too laborious, no conflict too heroic. So the, the history of the church, and he zeroes in particularly on, on Luther first of all. He says, The man knew but very little of truth. Upon the doctrine of justification by faith, he was clear as the sun at noonday. But he was half a Romanist in most other respects. But this one all-important thing he did for the church, he made her believe in God and in God's truth with a vigorous decision which had almost ceased from among men. And you actually find that in a lot of the earlier reformers. They are very clear on very central things by degrees, but they're not always very clear on even some other very significant matters. Why? Because they're only coming to these things slowly and by steps. The point is, where they are clear, they are absolutely clear and they hold fast to that truth fiercely. And then he talks about the modern revival under Whitfield and Wesley, and he acknowledges that these men are very different in elements of their theology, but they are full of God's spirit. Uh, And they're not discussing then whether or not the scriptures are true and uh, whether or not God is real or uh, writing books about the evidences. No, he says, these men preach the gospel and infidelity fled before them. An age destitute of spiritual life generally amuses itself by trying to prove what is not worth proving or wasting its energy upon external things to the neglect of the inward. An age spiritually alive takes itself to the Lord's work and treats all doubt as folly and sin. And so, if the doctrines which you profess be indeed true, grip them, hold them fast, get them engraven upon your souls and burnt into your consciences. Have faith in God and the truth, that the truth cannot be destroyed nor God defeated. Vitality and power in your faith will soon send force and life into all the other parts of your spiritual manhood. And now he says, on a different scale, the weakness of depraved human nature always gives way before the energy of that faith which the Spirit works in us. I would but cannot break the bonds of sin, he acknowledges. I would but cannot melt my heart and soften it in penitence. When the sinner is pointed to the cross and comes to trust himself with Jesus, viewing the blood sprinkled and the righteousness wrought out, then the man can pray, can sing, can melt in penitence or can rise up in flames of love. The inability of human nature is instrumentally removed by the energy of faith and by coming to Christ you come by faith and by going on with Christ you go on by faith and that is the way in which you are to go on at all times. The same then he says is true of what he calls subsequent spiritual debility that is the uh, the the fainting fits if you will of a true child of God. Sometimes you see a strong and healthy person growing pale and wan, losing appetite and falling into sickness until he becomes a mere skeleton because a general sapping and undermining of the constitution has come upon him. So, he says, have I seen it with Christians. They do not lose life, but they do lose all their energy and become as listless and lifeless as some of you probably now are in body through the heat of the air. Then they can scarce walk, much less run, and mounting with wings as eagles were quite out of the question. So it's interesting, remember that this is a sermon that's preached in in the middle of June or the end of June, and he's saying that the heat here is taking it out of you. He says some Christians are like that spiritually. And now he wants to be even more particular. And what's interesting here is how he really begins to dig down into personal experience. So he talks about specific believers now who are specifically troubled by specific moments or areas of weakness. Many believers, vigorous in many respects, are troubled nonetheless with a hesitancy in testimony. They cannot speak up for Jesus. And he says, A strong dose of the essential oil of believing, taken every morning and evening, would enable you to tell to sinners round what a dear saviour you have found. Now, he's not suggesting that there's some doTERRA uh, infusion that you can take where uh, a little drop of the essential oil of believing, what he means is if you can get that into your spiritual system from the word of God, then you would not be so timid in speaking for Christ. This timidity, he says, is a common weakness. Modesty is beautiful, but it may degenerate to cowardice. It is well to be humble. It is never well to be weakly fearful. Some are always afraid. They dare not try this and dare not try that. And if they happen to be placed in office where they can influence others by their counsels, they are shockingly bad officers because they are always keeping the church back from victory from a fear of defeat. He also points out that this faith operates as much in women as in men. Women sometimes lend superior courage to men, and the weaker sex proves itself the stronger. And He talks about Barak and Deborah. Mighty to conquer was the man who was timid to fight. When faith gave him courage, it made him triumph, but it was the woman who prompted him to believe. So, he says, carry a vial of strong faith along with you and a good draft of that will drive off your fainting fits. Then he says, a frequent form of weakness is despondency, which is so common in English churches as to be as much a national disorder as consumption. He says we're not so gay and frivolous as our Gallican neighbours and we are not quite so go-ahead as our transatlantic friends and I am afraid as Englishmen we have a natural tendency to become despondent. I know I feel it myself and in the circle where I move it is not at all uncommon. Brothers, despondency is not a virtue. I believe it is a vice. I am heartily ashamed of myself for falling into it but I am sure there is no remedy for it like a holy faith in God. We'll have to leave aside the the question there of national character and so forth. But I think it's probably true that despondency remains a a spiritual constitutional disease here in the United Kingdom. And that, he says, hamstrings a man. It makes him weak in the arena of conflict when he ought to be like a well-trained athlete struggling with his foe and contending for the mastery. Christian, beseech your Lord to increase your faith in him, your trust in the unseen, your reliance upon his promise and fidelity. For when you get more faith, you will rise superior to that weakness, and out of the weakness you will be made strong. Then he says, what about impatience? An impatient murmuring is another form of Christian weakness. He talks about Job. I do not believe heaven and earth ever saw a more majestic spectacle than the patriarch on the dunghill covered with sore boils, scraping himself with a potsherd and yet saying, shall I receive good from the hands of the Lord and not receive evil? Then there's the weakness of overcoming besetting sins or, or not doing so. I hope, he says, we're not among those who make light of sin. A genuine Christian dreads sin he will not say, is it not a little one? For he knows that a little sin is like a small dose of a very potent poison, sufficient to destroy our peace and comfort. And now he goes down another level of specificity and says, let me give you the example of a passionate disposition that is an irritable and quick-tempered person who gets into the habit of thinking, well, I was born like this and I can't help it. I'm always going to have this quick temper. And you always will if you think like that, says Spurgeon. But it strikes me that the grace of God must have power to overcome evil tempers and that your hope will be in believing that yours can be overcome and, there's the consequence, in struggling to mortify this among the other affections of the flesh. Notice then that faith doesn't wait around for these things to happen but strikes at sin in confidence in God. So, the eternal God who is your helper can surely help to make you a reasonable being and rid you of this madness, for anger is temporary insanity. Anyhow, he says, whatever may be our besetting sin, whether it's anger or or greed or lust or some other thing, we all have something. He says there have been cases in which such weaknesses have been cured by faith. So here's his first point, and it's quite a long and it's quite a developed one. Uh, cases of cure and he goes through the speaking specifically of the spiritual side of things the whole history of the church the testimony of depraved human nature then the uh, ongoing frailty of God's people and then he dives into some of these various specific areas even digging down to particular sins that can and must be overcome in faith. And so he says we will turn to our second head and analyze the medicine. What is it in faith then that makes it such an effective means of overcoming weakness and providing strength? So here are the ingredients. The first a sense of right. Faith is a belief in the rightness of that which God reveals, a trusting in its truth and who wonders that a man who believes therefore becomes strong. So Faith must know that what God has said is right is right and proceed accordingly. Then there's heavenly authority. A man conscious that he has a mission from heaven cannot be afraid. He must be mighty. And when a man feels, in addition to that, that God's decree appoints him to accomplish a certain end, that God's promise declares that he shall succeed, and that from the eternal nature of truth it cannot sustain defeat, then surely he stands like a rock in the midst of the billows, and he cannot waver, he casts all thought of fear to the winds. So here again you've got this sense now not only that of, of divine rightness but actually a sense of uh, uh, these, then, these this heavenly authority, this, this absolute conviction, this uh, real certainty that these things are so. Then again, there's a consciousness of heavenly companionship, which makes the believer courageous. He says the Christian feels that he has the companionship of his God and Savior. Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, God is with us. If we suffer, Jesus suffers in one of his members. If we're slandered and reproached for his sake, it's the cross of Christ which we're carrying and Jesus bears it with us. Then again, you've got an expectation of supernatural help. It's beautiful phrase. Faith hears the wheels of providence working on her behalf. And then again, you've got the prospect of ultimate reward. Faith bows her head in the day of battle when the poisoned arrows fly like hail. She whispers to herself, I may fall, but I shall rise again. And she vows by the eternal God that when she rises, it shall be with the selfsame banner in her hand for which she fell. You're warring then for God and his truth. Do not despair because of the gloomy aspect of the present age. Sense, he says, pictures the grave. Loss, suffering, defeat, death, forgetfulness. But faith points to the resurrection, the pompous appearance of the Son of Man. He means here the the Son of Man appearing in his pomp and glory. The calling of the saints from every corner of the earth. The clothing of them all in their triumphant array. And the entrance of the blood-washed conquerors into the presence of God with eternal joy. So he says, these are the essential ingredients of faith's comfort. Faith sees the invisible, beholds the substance of that which is far off. Faith believes in God, a present, powerful God, full of love and wisdom, affecting his decree, accomplishing his purpose, fulfilling his promise, glorifying his Son. Faith believes in the blood of Jesus, in the effectual redemption on the bloody tree. It believes in the power of the Holy Spirit, his might to soften the stone and to put life into the very ribs of death. Faith grasps the reality of this book. Here you are, you're you're right in the midst of the preacher's eloquence. You can imagine him either uh, maybe uh, dropping his hand on his Bible or thumping the page or lifting it up. Faith grasps the reality of this book. She does not look upon it as a sepulchre with a stone laid thereon, but a temple in which Christ reigns. Faith does not believe the gospel to be a worn-out scroll, rolled up and put away. She believes that the gospel, instead of being in its dotage, is in its youth, anticipates for it a manhood of mighty strugglings and a grand maturity of blessedness and triumph. You see, this is this is the preacher now, and he's, he's taken up with his theme. He's carried along with this a glorious testimony concerning what faith does, how faith operates, what faith believes. Let it be with us like this, says Spurgeon. Let us feel that we are men of another mould than to be afraid, that believing in God, we don't know how to spell cowardice. And as to fear of defeat or fear of man we've given that up for the craven dogs who slink at their master's heels, wear their master's collar and eat the garbage which his bounty throws to them. He's talking about Satan's dogs. We care not for the things that are seen. We've learned to live upon angels' diet and to eat the bread which comes down from heaven. Our motto is courage, courage. And having gone through these things, Spurgeon is almost out of time. So the cases of cure, He wants us to understand the way in which faith has made the weak strong and he's given us assurances that this can be accomplished. Then he wants us to analyse the medicine. What is it about faith that gives us this kind of strength? Well, we need a sense of right, we need a heavenly authority, We need a consciousness of heavenly companionship, an expectation of supernatural help and the prospect of ultimate reward. And when we have that kind of faith, then we've got this uh, great medicine, this, this panacea for the challenges which we face. And now very briefly in conclusion from him and from me, the third point is to administer this medicine. And he tries to, again, be very particular, very pastorally specific. Some of you are going through a present personal difficulty. Ask for faith in the Father's hand which wields the rod that you may get out of the weakness and made strong to suffer with holy patience. Others, he says, have a spiritual duty before you, but you're shirking it because it is difficult. I will ask that knowing your duty, you may rise out of that weakness by believing that God will help you to obey and so out of weakness you may be made strong. Then he says some of you are called where you live to contend earnestly for God and for his truth. And you've been trimming a great deal. You've been working your way around the issues, worshipping that modern Diana called charity, which is the devil in the form of an angel of light. And instead of bringing out all the truth, you've given up the corners of it. May you be ashamed of having been ashamed of Christ and of his cross. But I do plead with God for you that believing the very sweepings of truth to be precious and the very cuttings of the diamond of the gospel to be worth fighting for, you may escape from your weakness and be made strong in life and death to declare God's truth boldly. So you see what he's doing here. He's not for one moment stinting in rebukes to that weakness, that feebleness which is sinful but he's also assuring the saints that he will pray for them that they might not then continue in that sinful state of weakness. Some of you, he says, you're always doubting your father's love, the faithfulness of Christ, your own interest in him. I will not comfort you in such a state. He says, I'm not going to pander to you in that condition, but I am going to pray that you fly from such weakness, that you leave your doubts and your fears behind. You who are afraid of dying, and there are some such here, shall I ask that you be made strong while in that weakness? No, I dare not. Rather, I want you to have the kind of comfort while that, that brings you up out of that fear and that you'll no longer be subject to that bondage. The text then says, Out of weakness, brothers, and oh, may God grant that some of you who've been lying spiritually on a sickbed may through this sermon be made to take up your bed and walk, May all weakness be left behind, even as the child leaves the little garments of the nursery behind him when he becomes a man. And then remember he had a fourth point, to praise the physician. And this is Trinitarian theology, short and sweet. Our Father who is in heaven... Join with me. You need not sing with those lips. Let your heart sing as you say. Blessed be our heavenly Father, who has given us like precious faith in him. Source of all goodness, fountain of all confidence, we adore thee for teaching us the sweet art of trusting you. And then with equal thankfulness, bless the Lord Jesus. Blessed be those wounds and those agonies and that death which is the door of our faith in the Father's love. And then the mysterious person, the Holy Spirit, whose whose gift itself is faith, and who must increase that faith in us. O oh, blessed Spirit, be thou forever praised for putting such a jewel as faith into our poor hearts, and blessed be thy power for keeping it there, for Satan would long ago have stolen it, and blessed be thine energy which shall keep it till I am beyond the reach of the foe. So you see here how he's uh, praising the, the God who is one in three and three in one, whose faith who gives us this faith, who bestows it, who is the object of it, who is the sustainer of it. I'm persuaded, he says, that though I have not put it as I could wish, there is a great deal of practical value in the truth which I have stated. You must be strong. This is not an age in which weak Christianity will do. It is strong, energetic religion that we want now, and you cannot obtain it except by gaining strong faith and much of it. Plead for it then. And when you have obtained it, the world shall feel your power, God shall be glorified, and Christ's name shall be lifted high. This then is Spurgeon's concern. And while, as he says, there may be points at which he's been a little bit uh, disorderly in his uh, sequencing and in his proportions, where there's been perhaps moments of clumsiness, where he may have spoken stridently at one or two points, Nevertheless, the point is well made and it's good for us perhaps to remember that there will be times when our pastors do not preach as well as they might wish and you might know it before they do and yet the truth that they are speaking has practical value and you ought to take it to heart and ask the Holy Spirit to perhaps take away the dross so that you can carry away the gold. And I think the gold of this sermon, whatever other failings it may have, and I'm not suggesting it's loaded with them, is that we might see that it is indeed faith which overcomes the weakness of our souls and of Christ's church. And so we go to the source and fountain of faith, the God who first gives it, and we plead not only that we may have it, but that we may have it yet more abundantly. Oh Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, And by these means, we may advance, not just in in our own souls, but in our service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I trust that that's not been uh, too bitty and broken uh, in terms of our communication of it, and that you'll join us again, God willing, next week for another sermon from the heart of Spurgeon. On this occasion, it's going to be entitled Fields White for Harvest, it's Sermon 706, and we'll be reading from 703 to 709 over the course of the week. So do join us there. Join us if you can on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. Join us on that mediagratii.org podcasts mailing list. And let's continue to study these things from the word of God in the hands of a, a master minister of the gospel that we may learn out of our own weakness to be made strong in God by Christ through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening and God bless you.